Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of Ghostbusters 2016, starring Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones, Chris Hemsworth, Andy Garcia, Cicely Strong, Neil Casey, and a bunch of cameos. Directed by Paul Feig on a $144 million budget, 27 years in the making. We don't have any box office info because, Ron, this is the fastest turnaround on a podcast continuous play has ever done in six years you and i are recording this on thursday night premiere night we both just got out of theaters to see this and if people follow us on instagram the burning question is do i owe you money for a ticket (laughs) (laughs) yeah well um it would be a spoiler if I gave you the answer now, so this I think you should I think you should wait and find out at the end of the episode whether or not you owe me money. <laughs> yeah, we did you know, it was very like I'm talking this week, folks, that I said, you know, maybe we ought to do that one. Now, just a little history here. If you've been with us the entire six years, thank you, by the way, uh, for hanging in there because it's been a real journey. Back before this podcast was called Film Strip, back before there were popcorn ratings, back before I even knew Ron existed on this earth, Anna McCoy and I released the very first retrospective series on the show of the two Ghostbusters films. And of course, retired from our podcast in 2014, went out on a couple of high notes with those Footloose reviews, but those were the first ones that we ever did. And, you know, I don't listen to this podcast. I don't listen to my own show because I have to record it and edit it and all that stuff. But I went back and listened to those two shows. And yeah, they're a little rough and we're new at this and all this. But we had some good discussion and fun on that. And listening to those, because I knew I was going to go see this one way or the other, I was like at work, working late, listening to them, and I was like, I wonder if Ron would be down for this. <laughs> and so I texted you with like a proposition of, I will buy the ticket if you will go, but you were totally in for it. And uh, that was what was fun for me. So it's uh, it's been, this movie's 27 years in the making. I guess this podcast was six years in the making, though we whipped it together in about three days. Yeah, um, it, it, it definitely is a really quick turnaround and I'm not used to it. I look forward to us making many, many mistakes and getting things out of order and just generally putting our foot foot collective foot in our mouth. I you know, I don't know that we're gonna do it that bad. I, mean, I think we've learned how to do some of this through American Ninja Reviews and some of the other things we've talked about through the through the couple of years you've been on the show. But I I will go ahead and say now, if anybody's listening to this and you haven't seen it yet, you I mean, if you haven't already been spoiled to death on it, you haven't read all the Reddit and uh, other Ain't It Cool News hate and everything else that's out there about this movie, um, and I shouldn't say that because some of those guys are pretty fair to it, you're, uh, we're going to tell it all, but we're probably not going to go chronologically through it because there's no way to do that in you know what has amounted to about 35 minutes of uh, distance between seeing it and putting recording down. But just to remind folks, in case they don't want to go back and listen or haven't listened to it, I love that first Ghostbusters movie, as is, shouldn't be really surprising, depending on the, the way I rated things. If we were to give it popcorn ratings nowadays, I would give it an extra large. That second one, Anna and I were both really harsh on it. And if you listen to that show, I gave it the equivalent of a small popcorn. I will say now, 
in retrospect, I, I guess I'm getting old, soft in my old age. I would probably give it a medium popcorn and say it's that frustrating kind of middling medium because it just fails overall. But there's something there. But I, enough about me. I want to get real quick your thoughts and reviews on the first two Ghostbusters films before we do get into this new one. Well, I am a decently, I'm decently a Ghostbusters fan. Uh, I really like the first one. Uh, but the one I've seen the most is the second one. Interesting. And, yeah, because I I think it, it was like on VHS at my uncle's house, um, recorded off of television or possibly duplicated back when you had to run your um, – when you had to hook your VCR to your Betamax to get around copy protection <laughs> and then record from your Betamax back to your VHS. Uh, yeah, so I've seen the second one a bunch um, – I would. I have no qualms about the original Ghostbusters being an extra large popcorn. It's it's a classic for a reason, and I actually am a big enough Ghostbusters fan to give the second one, which I recently rewatched, a large popcorn because uh, wow. I really enjoy it. The uh, the the stomping Statue of Liberty just appeals to me on a very childlike level. Um, well, so. this movie's going to hit your sweet spot, so <laughs> if, if that's what you're looking for is slime and something large stomping through New York City, because we're going to get a whole lot of that. So, you know, you know, I, I'll, I'll say this about this, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on the controversy or what I call the non-troversy about it. Um, I almost feel like a lot of that has been cooked up by the studio because they weren't really sure how people were going to go for this. I don't put that above studios to do that. Um, as I remove my tinfoil hat. Uh, but I never thought we'd get this. Uh, and if you go back and listen to that Ghostbusters 2 review, I talk about what was the rumors of the next Ghostbusters film that never happened. And I ended up playing the Ghostbusters video game on Xbox 360. And I would recommend that to anybody who plays those kind of things. It's incredibly engrossing. Dan Aykroyd says that is pretty much the third film. As, as that it's uh, it was all the mayor's idea, spoiler alert, and Alyssa Milano is in it, and the Ghostbusters essentially go to hell and fight their way back, which is funny. And and it works. So you've got all the actors in there. You've got all the voices. I mean, it's it's a ton of fun. I was actually surprised how much of that game is in this one, too, I feel like. There's, like, direct scenes that I feel like I, I played on that video game before. Yeah, I have never played the video game, but you sell it really well, and now I'm interested, so I may have to try to pick that one up used somewhere. You can find it pretty pretty inexpensively used on Amazon or something like that. I mean, it's definitely definitely out there. Uh, but I guess it's time to get into this new one. Before we do the plot summary, though, kind of going into it, what were your thoughts, feelings about it before you walked into the theater tonight? Well, I, I was expecting it to be mediocre to bad. Um, I love all uh, four women who are involved in it. And if you were to pitch me a female lethal weapon with Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon, I'm on board with it. Um, but I, n the trailers never uh, appealed to me. I never – like the trailers looked bad. And so that put a bad taste in my mouth even before anything began. And, I, you know, I like Paul Feig. Uh, I like, you know, I like things that he does with these people. But just the, the trailers themselves did not do the movie justice, I don't think. Hey, can I say right now, this is the worst marketed, best movie I've seen all year. 
and that saying nothing else about how I feel about it, I had the same thought. I watched the one trailer that had come out, and I was like, eh? And then I paid attention to nothing else. I mean, there was article after article, people posting stuff, and I was like, eh, it looks kind of, eh. I even had a conversation with a friend today telling me we were going to do this, and he was like, I wish you luck. I don't even think you're going to get mediocre out of it. And I said, well, it doesn't look great, but I'll see. And halfway through the movie, I actually wrote that down on my phone for myself to remember it. I was like, this is the worst marketed best movie I've seen. It's like they poor mouth their way <laughs> into the theaters. It's such a weird way of doing things. And I think that's a lot of what the problem is, why everyone's so against this movie. I mean... Uh, of course, you could. Uh, everyone's going to say, "Oh, it's just misogyny or whatever," but uh, the trailers was a bad. Bad trailer is bad. Yeah, yeah. It's you a know, bad and, trailer. Yeah, and and, and the, even though it's got people I like, I mean, uh, Leslie Jones has been the only reason to watch Saturday Night Live that isn't Kate McKinnon basically all year. Um, and between those two, they're the two like funniest people on Saturday Night Live in a long time. I, I will throw Cicely Strong in there as well. If you haven't seen it, folks, go back to like the election of o- second Obama versus Romney election. And when she's playing Rachel Maddow and Kate McKinnon is S.E. Cup, that's a hilarious thing. It's on YouTube. Go check it out. They're both very funny. But I agree with you on Leslie Jones. She's the only reason to watch SNL right now. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, I like also like Cecily Strong, but you know, the I don't know how you screw up a trailer this badly. It is it is a failure. I mean, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen put together to try and sell a movie. It's I I mean I feel like the superhero movies are really bad about this. Like I've always felt the Thor movies, oddly enough, talking Chris Hemsworth here, were the trailers were awful. And but oddly enough, those movies are also bad too, and so it kind of it kind of lived up to its. I guess we're not doing a Marvel retrospective anytime soon, but I mean, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the Thor flicks. I think he's fine in the Avengers films he's in, but he's not really interesting in his own thing. But those trailers are bad too, and I, I've been wondering. I'm like, have we lost the art of trailer making? But the answer to that is no, because there's been some good trailers. Hey, that Independence Day 4 trailer actually looked remotely interesting till I saw it. So. Well, uh, if you'll allow me to put on my tinfoil hat, um, they I'm going to say that the studio put out a mediocre trailer to lower expectations. That's an interesting theory, yeah. You are, you are going up against a movie that is held uh, uh, sacrosanct by every basement dwelling nerd in the country. Yeah. Uh, basement I, dwelling nerds around the world. Let's just oh, yeah. put that right out there. Listen, and, I, yeah. Go ahead. And the, you've got to – I think that was their way of uh, tempering expectations a little bit because, I mean, you're not going to get – you're not going to get the original Ghostbusters. They don't buy that much. They don't let movie stars have that much cocaine these days. <laughs> or or <So>. control. <laughs> Though I would, I would argue if a third of the dialogue that these four you know, use was ever on a page, or if it was Leslie says something snappy, Kate acts weird, and Kristen and Melissa look really uncomfortable. Because that's kind of the whole direction of it as we get into it. But yeah. 
Uh, no, I'm with you. Maybe that is a good. That, that's a decent conspiracy. I mean, again, I feel like the controversy, and now with your let's put out a mediocre trailer to get everybody to calm down, you know, for a minute. Maybe it works. I don't it's, know. Yeah, it's like a it's like a war on two fronts. Um, it's yeah. it's a pincher it's a pincer action against the uh, the red pill. It's, it's a great idea. Of course, it didn't work on China, but uh, you know that's another story for another day because they're not getting to see it. But anyway, at least not legally. So before we go any further, though, I do think we need a plot summary. So last spoiler warning, folks, if you're curious at all and you're going to go to the theaters, we're about to blow it for you in case you didn't already know. So, Ron, hit us up. What happens in this new Ghostbusters? Dr. Erin Gilbert, played by Kristen Wiig, is left out of academia after a book she wrote with a friend about ghosts resurfaces and ruins her reputation. Gilbert reunites with the only friend who ever believed her tale of the paranormal, Abby Yates, Melissa McCarthy, and her new partner, Holtzman, Kate McKinnon. Uh, they, put, they come together to investigate a report of a haunted mansion. As it turns out, there's more than just one ghost out there, and a vengeful dork named Rowan, played by Neil Casey, is planting mysterious devices to bring ghosts into the living realm. After investigating a subway ghost, the Ghostbusters find their fourth member, Patty, Leslie Jones, a subway worker with an encyclopedia, encyclopedic knowledge of New York history and also access to a car. After plotting the ghost sightings, the four find a meeting place in the Mercado Hotel where two ley lines intersect. And if you don't know what ley lines are, I suggest you go to your local RPG nerd and ask them about rifts. <laughs> Turns out, Rowan is using the ley lines to tear open the fabric of space and time and unleash ghosts on New York City to get revenge on a world that never accepted him. It's up to the four Ghostbusters and their crazy equipment to blast the ghosts, stop Rowan, and reverse the hell portal to suck all the ghosts back in. Along the way, they blast several balloons, get into fights with ghosts, and eventually blow away, blow away Rowan, who has taken the form of the familiar Ghostbusters icon. Abby gets grabbed by the disappearing Buster, and Aaron throws herself into the portal to rescue her friend. As it turns out, the city's made-up tale of hallucinogens in the water, water supply isn't quite a good cover-up, as the four, and as the four Ghostbusters take up residence in the iconic firehouse, the city salutes them with cutesy messages in skyscraper windows. Cue the credits and cue the stinger that sets up a sequel. And the dance sequence, Bollywood style, that which we're going to talk about that. But uh, okay, we, we you know I mentioned it at the beginning there the, the cast list and a bunch of cameos, and we should just kind of run the list of them real quick. Okay, Bill Murray plays a. Uh, debunker of paranormal activity in this who gets thrown out a window by a ghost. Dan well, Ack- yeah, I mean, Dan- we could probably just start at the beginning with the cameos. Yeah, um, I mean, they start right out of the gate. Go ahead. Well, yeah, because uh, you've got Zach Wood, who's great, uh, who was great on The Office and who is great on uh, Silicon Valley as a tour guide. Yeah, in a uh, haunted mansion in New York. And he has a trick that uh, flips a, a, what is that, a candle on the floor and makes everybody think it's haunted. And sure enough, the actual thing is haunted. Yep. Uh, you've got Ed, Ed Begley Jr. as the guy who runs the haunted museum. Get a great little play there with like, Ed's been dead for years. This is his son, Ed Jr. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because <laughs> yeah. Ed Begley Jr. and Ed Mulgrave Jr. Yes. Uh, you've got Charles Dance slumming it as Fillmore. <laughs> hey, look, Charles Dance last died on a toilet being shot by a dwarf on HBO. There is no slumming it for this man, okay? Okay, that that's fair. And he... <laughs> 
I also believe he was in the full Monty. So yeah, yes, he was, and he was also the evil villain with a weird glass eye and last action hero. So don't tell me, and and, and my dear brother Noopsy, how dare we forget? So, you know, where we all met Charles Vance. But, yes, he's the head of the physics department at Columbia. And I will tell you, he pulls off the stereotypical prick academic very well. Oh, yeah, definitely. You've got uh, Steve Higgins of um, Tonight Show with uh, Jimmy Fallon as the dean of the uh, college, in quotation marks, where Abby and Holtzman work. That is a college that advertises, like... (laughs) on YouTube or something. That's a total riff on that, which is hilarious. But yeah, the Kensington Institute of Learning or something like that. Yes, you've got uh, Nate Cordry as that graffiti guy uh, who is some relation to Rob Cordry. (laughs) Um, You've got Bill Murray, of course, playing Martin Heiss, the, uh, the, um, the skeptic, the aforementioned skeptic. Uh, you got see. you got Ackroyd playing a a uh, New York cabbie who ain't going to Chinatown and ain't afraid of no ghost. Uh, who's hilarious in that two seconds that he's on screen. You got yeah, Ernie uh, Ernie Hudson is Patty's uncle who she basically rips the hearse away from. You've got uh, Ozzy Osbourne as himself. <laughs> yes, asking for Sharon, who most assuredly is not coming to his rescue. By the way, so. yeah, you've got. Uh, Matt Walsh is one of the Homeland Security agents, all, who is great on Veep. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, Playing almost the same kind of role. Yeah, <laughs> essentially the same guy. Uh, and, of course, you've got Annie Potts as the desk clerk of the Mercado Hotel. Yep, she's in there. You've got uh, – well, I, Andy Garcia and Cicely Strong have roles as the mayor and, I guess, the mayor's assistant, who is, like, at his side at all times. So maybe she's his wife, too. I don't know. But they're sort of extended cameos throughout the film, but they're hilarious. Yep. And you've got uh, Sigourney Weaver shows up at the end. Uh, Al Roker shows up because, of course, he does. I, uh, Al Ro- can any movie in New York be made without Al Roker in it? I almost think it's like a, a, a in his contract that if you're going to shoot in Times Square, Al must have a scene in your flick. Well, I mean, if you can if you can get Al Roker and the the whole Today Show for Sharknado three, surely you can get Al Roker for Ghostbusters twenty sixteen. You'd think, right? <laughs> yes, and uh, is that the list of the cameos? I, I think that's the biggest ones. Those are the ones I think everybody's going to know. There's probably other people that we don't know because I I do, I'll confess now I don't watch SNL, but I feel like there's a lot of other ones. Oh, Michael McDonald from Mad TV is in there. As oh the guy. man, he got old. Yeah. Yeah, he he well he well he just I think he just stopped dying the hair. I think it's been white and gray for a lot longer than we think. But and I'm not talking about the uh, singer of the Doobie Brothers, by the way, folks. If you don't know who I'm talking about, but uh, yeah, no, he's funny. I, th- there's a there's probably more that we don't know because again, we don't watch SNL. I don't think on a regular basis. So well, I I do, but it's like people who are no longer on the show. Like uh, I think is I think John Milheiser's off the show. He was one of the mm-hmm. the students at. Uh, that university um, yeah, in quotation marks I, where Abby Yates works. Um, this, this movie, like the 1984 movie, is littered with improv- improvisational comedians from the the shows that still do that, which really is only SNL now that really does that. And I guess whose line is it anyway, but nobody watches that one anymore. So, uh, and Drew Carey is not in this. 
or Greg Proops. So, uh, which is which a talk about a surprise? Yeah, really, that's a missed opportunity. But if it had been in Cleveland, Kerry probably would have been there. But Al Roker gets the New York Trump card, so uh, that's that's how that goes down. But no, at least at least they didn't have to edit out any um, after the fact Jared from Subway cameos. This is true. Oh yeah, that would have been awkward. Speaking but, uh, of Sharknado three, <laughs> there you go, there you go. And as I understand, have you seen? By the way, just a side note: if you haven't seen the advertisements for Sharknado four, which is essentially ripping off the Finding Dory, um, Finding Nemo logo, I don't know how Disney's not suing the crap out of them right now, uh, unless the conglomeration is so large that they're actually owned by the same thing now. For all I know, but uh, yeah, I I do uh, the one member of the cast though that I knew from nothing is Neil Casey. Who is he? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, I have, I don't even know if I've ever seen that guy before. I mean, I'm not the best person at the whole, who's that guy game, but, um, let's see, let me, I mean, apparently like he, he writes and has been on Saturday night live and he's, he's done inside Amy Schumer, which I don't watch, but he's been on that. And he was on other space. Um, which Milana Weintraub does make a cameo going into the subway in this, so maybe that's why she was on that. But I, I have seen Other Space. I didn't know he was in it. Uh, so, I mean, I wouldn't have known him from anything. And I kind of feel like that's the odd part of this because that character is so central to the plot that I thought they might have gone for somebody. Like, I'm surprised that wasn't Matt Walsh. Like, that would have almost worked better for me. But I guess they, they wanted someone that, you wouldn't mind when he was off screen because his character's around a lot, but he's not there because what a third of the time he's he inhabits Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, which I guess is just a good excuse to let Chris Hemsworth dance and and have some fun. I look, yeah, Chris Hemsworth. I would just say it right now steals the freaking show. This guy is hilarious as a twist on the dumb blonde. What if the dumb blonde was a, a man instead of a woman? And he is, I mean, he takes the lenses out of his glasses because they kept getting dirty. So now it's not, you know, not a problem. <laughs> and it covers his eyes when he doesn't want to hear anything. I mean, he's just, he's just so stupid, but adorable at the same time. And Kristen Wiig, like, drools in front of him the entire movie, which is, I think, supposed to happen, right? Like, it's, it's funny. Oh yeah, which it, which is really funny, and it's an interesting. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting. I, I assume that's the interesting variation on the Egon and uh, Janine yeah. flirtation. Except uh, this time, uh, the secretary is completely useless. <laughs> yeah, he is. They like at one point disconnect his phone, and he doesn't know the difference. You know, <laughs> they're just like, yeah, we'll just we'll just turn it off. I think that's the other thing too, and and one thing that. I realized early on in the movie that I, I didn't need to try to make analogs between these Ghostbusters and their previous counterparts. Because there's some, there's some similarities, but there's a lot of, shall I say, crossing the streams, too. And really what I noticed early on was that you had the, the real talkative one, Patty, which was Leslie Jones, who gets almost all the good lines between the four of them. You have Kate McKinnon, who's basically playing someone that's borderline insane. She's so smart, she's crazy. And then you have Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy, who are known to be really over-the-top, and particularly McCarthy, comedians who are both playing it like very straight. And I thought, what a great idea, because you expect them to do crazy things and hijinks, and they get some of that, but for the most part, they're kind of playing it down the middle. For, for this movie. Yeah, it's it's an interesting touch. I guess that 
Well, I, I like that because it allows, you know, the the more, um, you know, Holtzman and Patty to be more dynamic, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I think that's the whole point is to let them have room to breathe and do a lot of the other comedy while Wig and McCarthy are kind of, I mean, they're the, the ones that had a relationship before there was you know, this instance. And so I, I, you can kind of buy it. I mean, you buy that they're sort of together there. Yeah. And, and it's great because uh, Kristen Wiig's actually a really good dramatic actress and Melissa McCarthy actually got her start like on um, Gilmore girls and doing like dramatic TV work. Right, right. So, so they're definitely the two that have the most ability to play uh, the straight characters, uh, so to speak. Uh, while you've got your your much broader comedian specialists to do the crazy stuff. I mean, Kate McKinnon is great uh, making goofy faces, um, and Leslie Jones is great uh, being <laughs> Leslie Jones. Yeah, I mean, she is essentially playing herself. I mean, that's why I say that, you know, Fig and, and Katie Diffold, who wrote the, the script here, and she's a writer on Parks and Rec, and that is a very funny show, uh, by the way. I think they just kind of turned her loose and turned McKinnon loose, too, and they just let them be the goofy characters they are. And this is the thing is that McKinnon's the one that's the farthest out there, like floating around the planet you know, of her own, you see. And Jones is the one that's got all of the the groundedness because she's like I you know, she basically just invites herself into the Ghostbusters because she's like I look I know New York City y'all in all this science stuff and I got that covered you know, she's and she's always talking trash her scene when they're walking through that theater chasing a ghost where she's like that mannequin better not be behind me oh that talk oh no that's a room full of nightmares you know just hilarious stuff and I'm laughing the whole time at her because I'm like that's that's the sign of a good director that just knows how to turn a comedian loose. I mean, Aykroyd and, and Ramis talked about that in the original Ghostbusters was they just did things to try to antagonize Bill Murray because he was funny when they when they <laughs> when they ticked him off. And so he would that's what they got the funny out of him. And I I wonder if they didn't do the same here with uh, Jones. They made her do like several takes of something she didn't really want to do and then let her be herself and it came out naturally. Yeah, she um that part is is probably one of my favorite jokes in the movie. Um, the part with the the mannequin uh, <laughs> stalking Leslie Joe. It's practically a Looney Tunes bit. Oh yeah, and that's why it works with Patty because Leslie Jones is playing such a grounded character. She she is definitely the uh, the no nonsense type. Uh, <laughs> so it works really well to have her be like. Well, it kind of works with her uh, being the victim of the nonsense, the most yeah. flat-out funny portion, and to take your, your more straight-laced, uh, button-down Kristen wig and throw slop at her. Oh, completely. And and let's start with the, the how this thing begins. Is we, we get that haunting at the hotel, or not the hotel, the, the haunted mansion in New York, and Matt Walsh gets chased into the, the basement and, and a lot of slime turned on him, and we get the the Ghostbusters theme. And I was surprised. There's like at least four versions of that running around this soundtrack. There's the Ray Parker one. There's the walk the moon one, which sounds like the Ray Parker one, just, you know, slicker. There's the whatever fallout boy. And uh, I think it's Missy Elliott did. And then there's like another one. So I'm like, this, the soundtrack is four versions of that song. I swear. But we, we get that right out of the gate and they go with the Ray Parker one right out of the gate. 
And I was like, well, we, okay, we're going to blow that early. But the, you know, then I remembered, wait a minute, the first movie, that was all through it. <laughs> you know, they played that all the time. So it's they're trying to set familiar landscape while doing a very different setup. Yeah. I, I, don't, I actually don't think that's very successful. It 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 never. I don't know. I'm I'm not really. I don't really understand the point of that. They call back to Ghostbusters quite a bit, uh, but they don't kind of don't run with it. Right. It's like they they feel this need every ten minutes to remind us, "Hey, we're doing a remake of this other movie. Now forget about that one." And I will say now, this movie works best when it's not trying to be the 1984. In fact, if if they had alluded to almost nothing else in it, I would have been fine with it. Yeah, or if they had gone more heavily and leaned into the leaned into the Ghostbusters history a little more and had the cameos be the actual original Ghostbusters, you've got yeah, you know, the they they try to pick a middle ground between those two relative extremes, no Ghostbusters uh history versus hey, look at all these Ghostbusters uh and it doesn't really work. No, it, it really doesn't. And that's the thing about this one that's that's really different is that at the beginning of this, they're not all together. Like, that was the thing about the first Ghostbusters is three-fourths of them were together from the get-go. And what you see here now is Kristen Wiig has moved on from this to the point that she is trying to, like, not even own up to the fact that she had done paranormal research. And the, the only ones that are together are uh, Melissa McCarthy's character and Kate McKinnon's. Holtzman and Yates, and you would get the sense that they had just recently gotten together and put something together, and so it, it's all built around the idea that uh, Aaron Gilbert is up for tenure, and all of a sudden this book surfaces, and a YouTube video of her talking about ghosts after they go to that hotel surfaces, and it ruins her career. She gets fired over it. Yeah, it's it's definitely the uh, the inverse. Well, one of the things I liked is that not only did she get fired, I really liked that uh, Abby Holtzman also get fired as yes. well. Because you would think, oh, this podunk little place that they work is going to be desperate for any kind of publicity, and that'll be the new Ghostbusters headquarters, and blah, blah, blah. And they, they sub- subvert that quite nicely by him saying, this is a respectable 12-year-old university. <laughs> which is great. And then he, he does the, the multiple flip-off versions to throw them out of the building, which is, it, again, good comedy, just unfurling there. I, I did find that to be quite funny. Yeah, and I get the feeling that the, uh, the multiple variations of the middle finger was just him riffing. Oh, uh, listen, I, I bet there are like 20 outtakes of that, that on the forthcoming Blu-ray. That will we'll go into way more of that. I, the, I'll say this about the first act of the movie, because this is the putting together act or whatever, and I feel like it kind of comes to a head right before they, when they meet Patty and they go down there and they test the equipment out. It's the most rushed part. I feel like this, this got cut up a lot, because this movie's just under two hours long, and you can tell they're they're trying to speed it along and get into it, because... Again, as much as they don't want to just be the old movie or whatever, they're having to do all this shorthand to remind people of the world and what has come before, I feel like. Yeah, um, and and they allude to it vaguely later on in the movie uh, with uh, the two uh, Homeland Security agents discussing that, you know, this kind of stuff has happened before and it's been covered up. Um, so right. I, I think you could have just left it at that. 
and not call back to the original Ghostbusters quite as much. And I would have really liked to have seen them, you know, take a, a lesson in pacing at least from the original movie and kind of slow that part down. The the introductions because there's a lot of good stuff there, and you're right, it does feel kind of choppy. I, I mean, it is. I mean, you get good scenes with everyone. I, I don't want to give the wrong impression because I think everybody gets to establish who their character is. Um, and the best of those may be Hemsworth, and we can talk about that in a second. But it does feel rushed. It's like, we've got to get through this, we've got to get through this, we got to get into ghostbusting pretty quick. Even though they they spend a lot more time in this movie sort of uh, with evolution of the tech and everything. And that, you know, most of that's done by McKinnon's character. Remember, all of it's done basically by McKinnon's character. It's like every time they go out on a mission, she's got a new twist on the, the familiar stuff. But what we never saw before was what was the prototype of the proton pack. And now we actually get to see it. It's on like a cart that they have to wheel around. And then, it, then you can carry it. Then it gets flashier. Then you get like special weapons by the end of it. So I feel like they, they blow through... 25 years of nuclear engineering development in about 12 minutes total in the film. Yeah, and that's that's not really uh, something um, that you get in the first movie. I think you, I, th- I think you almost think you didn't need the proton packs. I think you could really? have just done it with the special weapons, and that would have been one of your updates to the Ghostbuster, uh, you know, technology or what have you. I, that would have been interesting if they had taken that approach with it. If they, if they had, by the end of it, got them all that. Because the, they do a, a great funny scene of they're looking for a place to hole up and do their research or whatever. They get kicked out of the fake university. And they go to the old uh, iconic firehouse. And the woman's like, it's $21,000 a month. And I love Kristen Wiggs just deadpan like, Murn in hell. Oh, I'm sorry. What did you say? <laughs> and I mean, I like my, my theater maybe had... 20 people in it total. I was on like a row by myself. There were a row of teenagers down in front of me. Then there's like all these 50-year-old people sitting up beside me here, and then there's this one young family over to the right, and everybody just died laughing when she did that because it was so funny. I don't even hear the next three lines because we were all cackling at that. I thought it was a great moment. But again, it's rushed in a little bit. Yeah, that's definitely one of the biggest, like the two biggest laughs that I remember from the movie were uh, that Kristen Wiig line that you talked about and then the multiple uh, variations of the middle finger. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, and the way that just kind of built uh, onto itself was just really funny. And I, I think the, the theater around me, we had uh, probably probably about 25 people or so, and, and that was a really successful bit. No, it's great, but it, but it does move us along pretty fast because the big thing they want to get to is this ghost in the theater. Um, and and I want to pause for a second here, though, because we do need to talk about Chris Elmsworth coming in here. I cannot overemphasize how funny the little job interview scene is and the faux sexual harassment that Christian Wig lays on him is in this film. It is... It is the funniest bits in the film. I think he gets all of the good laughy lines because he's just playing dumb, you know, which is weird to say that that can be something that is continually funny, but he never gets old in this to me. Not, not at all. Uh, he, no, he doesn't, he, he doesn't really get old. Um, I, he has a great face for deadpan, dumb comedy. Right, right. 
it's the it's the same kind of smile. It made me think of the smile that that Brad Pitt has in uh, Burn After Reading. Oh, that's playing perfect. A, yeah, play, playing a similar kind of pleasant but dumb fella, um, and it it seems to only get better once he gets possessed uh, later on in the movie because it's like. You know, he's good at, uh, he's a very interesting, you know, kind of guy to watch. And it's, it really is kind of funny to see, um, the abrupt, like, 180. Oh, yeah. I mean, when Rowan finally possesses him and takes him over or whatever, uh, he, and he becomes the bad guy for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes in the film, he totally owns it. I mean, in every way. I thought he was, so effective of being able to flip the switch because he still has that kind of dumb, you know, wit and look about him, but he's so much more serious about his actions at that point. And Rowan gets a great line with it, too. He's like, this guy's making me dumber by the minute. Just by by (laughs) inhabiting him, I'm becoming dumber as a spirit. So, no, I can't stay in here. That's when he cuts loose and does does the the ghost thing, uh, the ghost uh, symbol that come to life, which, you know, good because again if you want something to stomp through new york there you go ron so because <laughs> you're gonna get that but no i like hemsworth's introduction and his whole presence here because he just kind of looms in the background sometimes he's just walking by and he just does the dumbest things i mean it's that whole he's holding up pictures of him one of them he's like biting on a saxophone the other one's got it by his ear and it's like which one says more a doctor playing the saxophone or listening to it then it's i mean it's just again they're all looking at him like you can't be that good looking and that dumb but you oh bless your heart you are yeah and that's definitely um that's a that was also where we stayed for uh, the credits and that was also the funniest part of the credits was just the variety of headshots of him all of them shirtless, but like with a stethoscope <laughs> yeah. to be a doctor. Or my, my favorite one is where he's holding the power tools or the, or the hand tools or whatever. And I'm like, what role was that for? Because so, I think there's there's some drop line in there or something that he's an aspiring actor or whatever. That's how he winds up working for them, which is you know, sure, why not? You know, it's it's the other thing in the we'll talk about that dance sequence, I guess, when we get to the end. But I, when he freezes everybody and they're in like thriller pose, I was like, where's the dance sequence? And I'm like, oh, of course, Hemsworth lead the dance sequence. I was but, waiting for them to start thrillering, but. I must um, I I say, this movie's budget would have been $190 million if they wanted to do that. I'm pretty sure Michael's people would have wanted a cut. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I guess they went with the cheaper, presumably Sony-owned Saturday Night Fever pose. I'm pretty sure Sony does own that. Yeah, I think that was a Columbia back in the day. It's been a long time since I've seen that one, but uh, not a retrospective coming, by the way, folks. So just <laughs> just going to throw that out there. You, you, mean you, don't, you, don't, you mean you don't want to... To do a double feature of Saturday Night Fever and Staying Alive. You mean the most 180 sequels of all time? So maybe it's worth it. I don't know now that you mention it that way. But uh, to be seen, I I love this the scene though at the theater because it's like this is this respected theater and they're hosting like C-rate metal bands. Is that what's going on? And Ozzy, is that what's happening? Yeah, that was um, that was a kind of a weird thing to me too. I don't know a lot of like uh, it's like Ozfest is in town. So. 
Yeah, but without any of the Ozfest supporting bands, it's just Oz. Yeah, I was like, wait, who was that? That band, that's got to be a fake band, right? I don't behold the beast or what, mayhem or whatever they were called. That are those real musicians like cameoing and making fun, or are those just actors pantomiming badly? Uh, it's got to be a fake band. I don't see how that's a real, a real group. And see, that's what's wrong with this this world today. Everybody takes themselves too dang seriously, man. Like, the fact that Disturbed wouldn't get up there and poke a little fun at themselves or, you know, Slipknot. Somebody, like, we couldn't get anybody to get up there and do that? Come on. You know, oh, you, you couldn't afford Slipknot. There are too many people you'd have to get on stage. <laughs> this is true. That would be like trying to get Guns N' Roses back together or something. But, I mean, David Lee Ross probably not doing anything. I guess he's not metal enough, though. He's not Satan enough. No, he's on tour with, um, I think he's still on tour with Van Halen. I think they're still kicking around. They're, st- they're still going around. Well, you know, I, know, well I know they're not Guns- on tour with Gary Sharon, that's for sure. Guns N' Roses are, are touring around too, but like, it, it made me think of how um, in one of the Ace Ventura movies, and this is a really weird tangent, but they got Cannibal Corpse to come in, <laughs> and like Ace Ventura is like negotiating his way through the crowd, and like Cannibal Corpse is actually playing Cannibal Corpse songs, and if they could get Cannibal Corpse for Ace Ventura one, I think, surely you could have found like a. a yeah, you could have gotten a real metal band of some sort. I really thought that might have been a a real metal band, but I guess it's not. So, but I do love that the ghost gets loose after they blow the mannequin up and starts going through the crowd, and the metal band just like the the front man just goes with it, like yes, the power of metal. We've summoned the devil himself, and the demon looks at him like, man, that ain't me. I'm from Buffalo. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hilarious. Well, no, that's the uh, that's the flying gremlin from Gremlins Two. That, that's what that was. I was gonna ask you, what are they ripping off here? Because I know I've seen this thing somewhere before. And uh, you mentioned before that this felt like a cartoon. I was getting like a Scooby Doo vibe off of so much of the ghost fighting, and not in a bad way either. Like I I found the animation to be very clearly animation, but I kind of like the fact that it almost calls itself out. Now, see, I'm gonna disagree with you on that point. I didn't like the, I didn't like a lot of the ghost design. I liked the uh, the initial ghost, the um, the ghost daughter. Oh uh, yeah, the the woman that spews Ger- all over Kristen Wiig. Gertrude yeah. Aldridge. I kind of yeah. liked that ghost. It, it felt a little Beetlejuicey. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, but I didn't like the the big grand finale with all the just. Um, you know, uh, the, the just the random floating specters. Uh, I, I wasn't crazy about that part. I thought the scene of the portal opening up over the hotel somehow looked worse than the 1980s Ghostbusters. Wow, really? Uh, yeah, it looked fake. It looked like more fake than original Ghostbusters. I, yeah. You know, I'm not going to disagree with <clears throat> you that it didn't look photorealistic, that it didn't have some bit of realism to it because it's obviously all computer generated and CGI and stuff but I actually liked the fact that the ghost designs were so cartoony like again it it gave me this whole vibe of what this film is going for is that it's not trying to take itself so seriously part of the thing that really works for me about that 1984 film is that it's a horror movie with comedians in it so the funny is not written into it it just happens because those are funny people in it, and and they know how to make that funny, but it's it's a horror movie. You know, it's kind of a tame one, but it's a horror movie. This movie is a 
comedy film with a little bit of horror sprinkled in it. And I'm okay with that. I actually thought the the ghost design and the effects didn't take me out of it at all. It let me know I was watching something that was concocted to be a movie. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I see your point, but I think the thing that left the worst taste in my mouth and what kind of pushed me over the edge was the redesign of Slimer. Oh, the, yeah, the the, the uh, going away from the ghost of John Belushi. Yeah, I could not get behind that new Slimer. I just, he didn't have a tail. He didn't. Uh, I, he had a girlfriend. Eye, well, yeah, but the eyes were, the face was weird and unsettling to me. It, um, it wasn't the greatest thing. I like the fact that they gave him stuff to do that he steals the Ecto-1 because as someone who watched that cartoon, the real Ghostbusters growing up, I loved how Slimer just became kind of like a pet, you know, <laughs> and, and he hung out with everybody, especially like Ray. And I'm like, well, you know, that, that Slimer, he would drive the, the car. Well, it, it, it fits in with the character of Slimer because he was a bus driver in Ghostbusters 2 because uh, uh, Louis Tully gets on the bus. And he's the driver. That's right. A, and a I'm, really fun cameo. Melissa McCarthy has a great line. Like, that thing's having the time of its life. And, and again, she's the straightest of all of these. Like, if Kristen Wiig is playing it straight, Melissa McCarthy's playing it super straight. And that makes the deadpan of her line so much better. I I, I don't know. I, I think we just disagree on, on the effects. I think the, the effects look this way on purpose, though, is what I'm trying to say. I think they are purposely trying to not be... Uh, as scary as the 1984. Exactly. Or as scary as anything else. Like, we haven't reviewed it yet, but they're not trying to do Paranormal Activity the Ghost Dimension. You know, I mean, they're not trying to do that. But Thank, thank God. But I do get the impression that they were trying to be scary in, part, in, in certain parts. Like the, uh, the, the ghost mirrors... Um, those yeah, those things I will say that in Rowan's like little lab that he's built secretly underneath the hotel that is going to release all the it's like dimension portals he set up mm-hmm. but they're mirrors and it's like souls of the Freddy damned kind of trying to get out or something I didn't like that felt like I was walking through a cheap haunted house at the JCs or something like I I that I will say now I'm like yeah, I didn't really go for that and I'm glad they didn't focus on it much because it didn't look good that. that when they tried to be scary, now I'll agree with you, it didn't work. And that's again why I say this movie is not a horror movie with comedians in it. It's a comedy movie with a little horror sprinkled in it. Yeah, and that's, I, I guess that's a fair assessment of it. I just, I did enjoy that Slimer was still Slimer and doing like hijinks. Yeah, he was eating hot dogs by the dozens. And Yeah, and, you know, and I, 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 enjoyed when, I enjoyed when he came back. Uh, driving Ecto One with his girlfriend and with all the other ghosts in like the the, the party van. Yeah, that I was... mean, again, they they had a party barge coming through, and then they do the Dukes of Hazard leap at the end, which we we're definitely going to talk about. But I I do I, the the best part of the theater thing for me is when the ghost, which is again a winged gremlin essentially, lands on Patty's shoulders and picks her up, and like Kate McKinnon's like you've got it, and she's like I don't I'm telling you I don't want to know I'm just going to go back to my booth at the MTA and just this is all going to be a bad dream, and I I love how they take the thing down. And, you know, that's the other thing is in the first movie, they, they got to the the whole idea was of the containment of the ghosts. In this movie, they, they capture one ghost. Like the rest of the time, they use their weapons, if you will, to like destroy the ghosts. And I thought that was a different turn. It's almost 
more action movie oriented than trying to con- be a containment unit. Yeah, it it, it ends up being like um, uh, Neighborhood Watch. Yeah. The, or, the, or the watch, bad. whatever they retitled yeah. it to. The watch, the one, yes. Yeah. The one where they're uh, blasting aliens or whatever. Right, the the bad uh, Ben Stiller, Vince Vaughn thing we're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's weird how the Ghostbusters become the ghost murderers. <laughs> can but, you murder a ghost? Um, really? Well, clearly you can, because they run that one, uh, they blow up ghosts with hand grenades, and then they run that one through the shredder, and it spits out... Uh, ectoplasm, like oh yeah, no, I love into a wood chipper. Yeah, no, yes, I love the little gadgets that Kate McKinnon keeps coming up with. She's got like the two pistols, one she licks and she starts shooting stuff like Clint Eastwood style. I love that Patty gets the ghost wood chipper and she does chew up that one ghost in the finals. I like the little secret weapons they give Melissa McCarthy, like the Mike Tyson punch out glove, essentially. <laughs> I, I thought those were fun. I mean, that again, it was. It's played for a different aesthetic, though. Like the yeah. last time when they fired their stuff up, you felt like at any moment they could all die. <laughs> you know, like this may not work, and this time they just play that for laughs. It, there was a lot more uh, comedy uh, exposure to radiation this time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like a drop line. Like, don't touch that thing. It's probably the radiation. You really shouldn't be in the room with it, you know. And and yeah, then I got they, the, uh, What did yeah. you say? I got a the warm and fuzzy feeling inside me, and they said, "Oh, that's probably just radiation." Yeah, it's, like, it's probably the radiation. Yeah, you need to calm down. I know. I again, I think part of this that works too is the fact that you've got four comedians here who clearly have found a rhythm with each other that is built from something different because. I mean, McKinnon and Jones would know each other, and of course, Wig and McCarthy have been in stuff together. But last time, those three guys like did everything together for like twelve years before they ever did the movie together. They'd been in several things together, so there's a shorthand to the way they were working. I was impressed with how quickly and how bonded I felt like the group was. Yeah, that that was one of the things that I think um, they were able to successfully update. Um, so to speak, it definitely feels like they they come together as a group quickly, but it doesn't feel, uh, you know, unnatural. It doesn't feel like – that part doesn't feel rushed. They seem to all – well, the three of them have the ghost thing in common, and then Patty is one of the first people to see ghost – to see a ghost and not wet her pants over it. So oh, yeah. That, I think that that's a really helpful thing to kind of bring them all together. You lose some of the uh, – introducing Winston to the concept of ghosts kind of thing because you've already got a believer. But I think that was a nice update. Oh, yeah, again, it's they don't have to form... They have to form the group here, but the group sort of forms organically. I mean, Holtzman comes with, with Yates because they're working together now. Yates and Gilbert have this history together. They rekindle it, and you know she just falls right in line with Holtzman. And then Patty just invites herself to the party. You know, and and they do get some really cool bonding scenes. I thought, you know, talk about Kristen Wiig can play dramatic. I thought her scene where she explains the fact that she saw a ghost when she's a kid and nobody believed her except Abby. That was her only friend. You know, I, I thought that was, you know, sweet. And that's the one thing about that first movie that, when it's being funny and goofy, I mean, you kind of put up with Peter Vinkman's sexual harassment in it because it is kind of sweet. I felt like this movie had the same kind of touch of sweetness to it in in those light moments. 
Yeah, that's uh, that is another thing that I think is is uh, replicated really well uh, or created really well in the script. It does have that kind of heart that I I, I would associate with Ghostbusters because I mean they're even nice in the movies. They're in the the, the the two original movies. They're even nice to Lewis, and I mean he's a little weasel. Oh, completely. I mean, you you like Ghostbusters too. His role is vastly expanded in that. I felt like that was unnecessary at the time, but it, in some ways, it's kind of nice because they don't ever ridicule him for it. And that's the same thing here. Like as dumb as Kevin is, the secretary, and that, that's Chris Hemsworth's character, by the way. I don't think we've called him Kevin yet, uh, and not that it matters. But you know, they're nice to him. They're, as as different as the four of them are, they're kind of good to each other. And I don't know. I, again, there was a sweetness and a heart to it. I think you put a good word on. It. Yeah, I did enjoy the uh, the scene where Kevin shows up in his go, his homemade Ghostbusters outfit. That was. Oh yeah, I was I was born to be a Ghostbuster, and then he gets inhabited by a ghost. Well, give her what you wish for, Thor. Well, so. if, if if I remember correctly, doesn't Lewis say that he was born to be a Ghostbuster? I, yes, in he the does. Second one? Yeah, yes. Oh, there are a, there are direct lines just repeated here. I think for the super fans of those first two films to get, and you know, there's you gotta walk a fine line when you do that kind of stuff for me in a in a reboot or a remake or reimagining whatever you want to call this of a movie because I feel like sometimes like mm, that's too much of that. Like I was going to say now like Creed to me, which was essentially Rocky, but if he was a young African American man, you know, I, I liked it for the most part. But there's a lot of repeated lines in that movie where I'm like, we didn't really need to do that again. Like I've seen that a lot. I don't. I don't need to see that again. So now, if you want to repeat the "I must break you" Russian thing, I'm always down for that. But you know, I, some of that other stuff is a little hokey. I felt like in this one though, they didn't do too much of that. I want to make sure I, I say that clearly because I'm complaining about that. It could be a problem. I don't think they go over the top with any of that here. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's over the top. But I think that if they had left it out completely, I would have also have been fine with that because it doesn't. I mean, at no point does this movie, like, really feel like a Ghostbusters movie to me. It feels really? like a Paul Feig movie. Um, now, that we will agree on. Uh, because I I don't think ghost, a Ghostbusters movie has a formula that is identifiable. Those first two movies are essentially the same movie made a little differently from each other in a lot of ways. Uh, the plot almost works the same way. In both of them, so I don't know that there was a ton to try and recopy here, and I and frankly, I'm really glad that the third act doesn't completely replicate that first one. Yeah, um, I just again, I just have to go back to the thing where I think if he, if Paul Feig and Katie Dippold had made a movie like this and didn't call it Ghostbusters, I think that there would be a lot less uproar and i think that it would have possibly worked better i in, i don't know in scenes i think it could have and i agree with you i think it would be neat to see them team up and try to put these people in another movie that's not called ghostbusters in some way but that's what they're doing and i think they're trying to take what is done before and do enough of it enough shades of it that fans of it can go oh yeah i remember that i like that but then go and do their own thing because again like i said at the beginning this movie works the best when it is 
not trying to be the 1984 Ghostbusters movie. You know, it, it really does. When it does its own bits and has its own pieces, it works. Yeah, it definitely works a lot better that way. And I think if you were going to do like a movie that was more of a tra- traditional, in quotes, Ghostbusters flick, um, you could have gotten somebody like I, I. I have no doubt that Edgar Wright would have like sawed off a leg to get his hands on Ghostbusters. Oh yeah, and that that just puts to uh, puts in mind the idea of an all British Ghostbusters remake that I would think would be great, especially considering how old a city London is and how full of supernatural things it would naturally be in that kind of situation. It would have been interesting to see somebody like that take it and try to make it something else. Like, because yeah, Wright has definitely has a style that's all to his own, and I don't disagree with you that this is a Paul Feig movie. You know, it, it's a Ghostbusters remake, but it's a Paul Feig movie. I, g- good analogy here. Whether you like the Fallout Boy and Missy Elliott song or whatever, that song's written by Ray Parker Jr. and Missy Elliott because she writes her rap for it or whatever. But it's a very different take. I mean, it's a fallout boy song with that old set of lyrics. And I kind of feel like this movie is trying to do the same thing, which is why I think there was a lot of outrage about that song. I'm like, it sounds like a fallout boy. song, like a modern fallout boy song, not their old, you know, real rock and punk stuff. It sounds like the Michael Jackson tribute band that, uh, you know, um, what's his name? Patrick wants fallout boy to be, and it, <laughs> it kind of works. So, yeah, um, I, I think that it's that would be a difficult uh, kind of line to walk, um, and it's not really a slight to say that it's not quite uh, successful in that. In that trying yeah. to be trying to be uh, trying to feel like a Ghostbusters movie, but also trying to feel like its own separate thing. I, yeah. you know, no slight. I don't know of a lot of people who could have. I can't think of a lot of people aside from like an Edgar Wright who could have pulled off something. Like that. The only way you could have done it, and I think Wright even would have done this, you would have had to make it a little more straight than even the first one was. Like, there's part of that that first movie. I hate to keep going back to it here, but there's part of that first movie where it gets pretty serious when they are in jail and they're kind of going through the maps and all that stuff. That stuff gets kind of scary and spooky and weird. That's why I say again, that's a horror movie with comedians in it. This movie never has that scene. It has touching scenes where these people bond with each other, but it never has that moment where everything turns and you're like, holy cow, this is about to get really bad. Like It never does that. And I credit this film for not trying to recreate that emotion because it, it couldn't do it. That's the thing is I don't think that would play at all today. I think people would be like, hey, just Google that shit. You know, <laughs> they don't think they would buy that, that type of uh, play in in this and let's talk about so you know some of the things that happen here before we get to the the uh big climax you know bill murray's character comes to check out their claims of this you know gremlin type ghost that they've caught and i love the back and forth between aaron and and abby where she's like abby's like do not open that do not open the nuclear disposal trap in our presences please don't do that and she's like okay and then she steps on it anyway (laughs) You know, like I'm sorry, I had to, and I, I thought that was great. That that definitely uh, that that's a really fun moment, I think, and that's I think that's a lot. Uh, that's actually one of the like the more successful character beats for um, Aaron because she doesn't care about you know uh, 
saving the city or doing the, the smart thing. She cares about saving her reputation. That's a big deal for her. She, yeah. just like as she says later on in the movie, she was Ghost Girl, and she doesn't want to be Ghost Girl anymore. Right, and that's the thing. She is constantly trying to salvage her career and her reputation, while the rest of these people are just enjoying being Ghostbusters. You know, like they totally embrace it, and she's sort of the last one to embrace it. It's not until she shows up with the uh, Chekhov Swiss Army knife to pop the uh, Stay Puft balloon that's landed on the other three that we kind of see her embrace that. Yeah, and that was um, that's that that's kind of an interesting way to go about that character. Uh, the the only thing I the only part I think feels has the weight of the original Ghostbusters movie, like you were talking about, was when Aaron goes to confront the mayor and tries to get Andy Garcia to evacuate the city. She gets to have a good Kristen Wiig freakout, and then immediately after that, as she's walking through the town, it, it kind of feels like she's saying to herself. She's got that kind of expression on her face that seems like she's saying to herself, well, I guess now we all get to die. Well, you know, there's two things in there. She drops a line on Andy Garcia, which as a fan of this series just made me just chuckle out loud. She says, don't be the mayor in Jaws. And he's like, don't you dare compare me to Murray Hamilton. (laughs) And I love that because he's totally being the mayor in Jaws. And then she has the Roy Scheider, Chief Brody in Jaws 2 moment where she realizes I've been fired. The shark's going to eat my kid. Screw reputation. I got to go kick some butt. And I think I think she does that right there, and I don't think that's you know uh, a, a mistake at all. I I love the call out to that, and the fact that she has that same character turn because you're right, she's running through the streets trying to tell everybody to get out of the city while the ghosts are basically attacking the city, and she realizes I gotta go get my stuff because it's you know, screw reputation. It's time to get some work done. Yeah, I like that part, but the thing I think that made me laugh the most was. Uh, when Andy, uh, when she says the Jaws line, and Andy Garcia just blows up. <laughs> oh, it's great! That, that made me laugh so much because that makes me feel like this is not the first time someone said that to him. <laughs> no, I then, love it. Yeah, I, I, I do love that. And it would have only been capped off better if Cicely Strong said, "Down, down, down." It's you're not Jaws. You know, like she had because she almost is kind of doing that, like she's patting him on the shoulder. And I'm like, again, I'm like, who are you? The assistant? Are you the mistress? Are you the wife? What are you? It doesn't matter. But she's. Uh, it's it's a great moment. Because um, Andy Garcia, when he freaks out, is great. He's pretty much playing the same character that he was in the Oceans movies. He's just the mayor of New York now. Um, and I love his whole thing. is like, I don't need this bad publicity, so we're going to arrest you, and we're going to talk crap about you in front of the public, but uh, behind the scenes, we like the work you're doing. you know. And I'm like, that is total, yes, the government nowadays, and how people feel about the government, is that they denounce things that they secretly are funding. And I really enjoyed the part, the, the the throwaway line in that that made me laugh the most is uh, when Cecily Strong says, uh, fake arrested. Oh, also, we had your car towed. Real towed, not fake towed. <laughs> yeah, no, they're like, what? Yeah, I know. That's it's so. Tell me about somebody that can deadpan humor. And that yeah, that woman's whole shtick is that, I think. So. That's a great uh, setting. And that, uh, that general uh, attitude and the way they approach the Ghostbusters this time, I think. Uh, is one of the modernizing updates that works really well. Oh, and yeah. it also adds fuel to the fire that this, number one, this is not the first time this has happened. And this is not the first thing Mayor Andy Garcia has swept under the rug, under the rug Jaws style. 
Oh, of course not, right? And this is the thing is New York in 1984 is not the New York that we know now, the, the post-Giuliani New York that's clean and, you know, relatively safe and stuff like that and a place people want to go. New York in 1984 was a place nobody wanted to be, you know, yeah, except people from New York. Now it's, it's a tourist trap, so it is the town. It is Amity. Yeah, just the world's largest Amityville. Or yeah. Amity, not Amityville. Yeah, wait a minute, we're wrong series. Yeah. Although he may be covering that up too. We'll tie it or, back to the Or <laughs> or faking it for publicity for all we know. Yeah. But that's um yeah, that just makes me think that like under the city somewhere there's just like a hive of chuds. <laughs> well, you know, if you're to believe Ghostbusters too, that it's it's a, a bunch of pink slime. You know, <laughs> running around and saving everybody, which we'll be getting to the slime under the city later on this October, Rock. But uh, a <laughs> little, little Friday the 13th tease for you folks. But, you know, I love the the thing that sets up the, the final act here, though. They go to confront the Rowan guy because they, they basically figure it out through Google, you know, that it's this sad <laughs> loser. It's, and uh, Melissa McCarthy gets a great line. It's like, it's always the pale ones, you know, <laughs> or whatever. She's standing next to McKinnon who looks at her like, excuse me? You know, because she's, you know, opaque almost as, as a blonde. And they go to, and he electrocutes himself. He kills himself as part of this thing and they're like well that's kind of a weird way to go out and what it was is his plan all along was to become a ghost we see Aaron sort of that's another character turn for her is she finds a copy of their old book in his possession and she starts reading through it and realizes that he basically built his plans for the city with the ley lines and all that stuff off of what they had written about paranormal so I think that's part of her turn too she realizes ultimately this thing I have tried to bury from my past I am ultimately responsible for a lot of what is happening here, indirectly, even if, and she takes responsibility for it. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that is a really good character turn, and I think that's one of the other like legitimately creepy scenes in this movie is when she's flipping through that book, and it gets increasingly, uh, uh, you know, it gets increasingly creepier. It gets increasingly more like a cross between like Ed Gein's journals and uh, the Necronomicon. Right, yeah, he draws himself as a giant monster with, you know, fanged teeth leading the ghosts through the city to sweep up humanity as garbage and just sweep them all out or whatever. And I'm like, man, this guy's pretty, he's pretty freaky and serious about his plan here. And I love how she's the one that figures out that, yes, that was his plan all along. And the first person he inhabits, we talked about him taking over Kevin. He takes over Melissa McCarthy in the bathroom for like a few minutes, and she gets a great line, like, turning her head around, like, exorcist style, and I think Patty, uh, uh, Patty, Leslie Jones gets some of the best comedy in that moment, because, again, I, I missed a lot of dialogue, because the 40 of us in the theater were just cackling the whole time. Yeah, that is, that, that was really one of the, uh, one of the biggest, like, another big kind of laugh scene is when her head turned all the way around and you got that great uh, that great reaction from Leslie Jones. Yeah, and and the Ghostbusters or three of the Ghostbusters, everybody but Gilbert are marching through the the city streets as this dark cloud has taken over everything and all these ghosts are starting to come out of that hotel and that reminded me a lot of the video game. There's a big scene early on where you're marching through the seat, the streets of Manhattan cleaning it up a little bit at a time, and some even some of those ghosts make an appearance again, and they get their, you get close to their big showdown, and we get the moment where police and Homeland Security show up, and Rowan just freezes them all, as we said in Saturday Night Le uh, Fever pose, and then he unleashes all of these, like, 
are they supposed to be from like the twenties or something or King Kong era New Yorkers? That it's like a carnival of pirates and it's like it's, the fog rolled in and the Ghostbusters had to fight them off. Well, there are some pilgrims. Um, yeah, they do talk about they killed a pilgrim. Yeah, and there's also some sort of ghost parade. Yeah, it's it's a it's a carnival. It's a circus. The, again, the fog. It's you've got all of this there, and you also have Gertrude and uh, Gremlin Ghost making appearances to get slayed again because every one of these three Ghostbusters gets a moment where they get to use their weapons to do some ghost kills. Yeah, and it's um, and it's a nice kind of um, roundabout because they kind of get to to kill the ghosts that tormented them the most, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I, you know, this movie can't do a montage because we don't do those anymore, right? So instead of that, they had to do something where we get music pumping and we get people into some big action scenes. And I I don't know, I kind of liked it. I liked the fact that each of them got their little moment and they each had to save each other's butt at some point doing it, showing that, again, they're good by themselves, but they're much better as a team. Yeah, and that 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 helps to kind of reinforce the 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 bonding elements. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and the thing that happens is a big balloon falls on them, and uh, that's well, Aaron's involved in that scene too. I, at the end, I should have said that she gets her scene to shoot off Ghost too, and they realize that the hotel is the portal. That's the center point of all the ley lines and all that stuff, and. They they had a line in there earlier when Slimer steals the, the Ecto-1, like, don't shoot that thing, it's a nuclear reactor on top of it. And then they realized, well, maybe we should throw the nuclear reactor into the portal. And I want to say now, the biggest fear I had about callbacks at all, I was like, please don't try to recreate the cross the streams, don't cross the streams bit. And not one time do I remember them even going there with this. And I I, I appreciate the fact that they sort of left that in 1984 where it belonged. Yeah, it's it again. It kind of feels like a um, like a a build up on top of the original in a sense because you've got well you've got the the ghost killing weapons uh, which is kind of like the proton packs turned up to eleven and then the fact that they actually explain what some of the junk on top of Ecto one is <laughs> was yeah. was a nice touch. Well, if you ever played the old Commodore 64 game, you know what that is. It's the super trap and the, the ghost vacuum, which, by the way, if you ever play that, buy those early. It will save you lots of time. <laughs> but just a little tip for you NES guys out there, you you ROM people. Uh, yeah, just, <laughs> just a tip for the five people who have a uh, Commodore 64 ROM if on their you, computer. If you have one, people... I want you to screenshot it and send it to us at J underscore Newcastle on Twitter or J Newcastle CPP on Instagram. Please. I want to see that. So uh, anyway, uh, we get to our big showdown here, though, where they realize that the thing to do is to to target the big coolant reactors or whatever and, and blow them up. And I do love that they essentially wrangle the Ecto-1 and make it do a big uh, Dukes of Hazard leap into the void. Um, I, I thought that was hilarious because when it explodes and starts bringing everything in with it, um, it I don't know. I thought it was good. Again, it's cartoony looking effect, but it was fun. Yeah, that I I, I did enjoy the uh, Slimer and Miss, Mrs. Slimer uh, Thelma and Louise moment. 
<laughs> yes, that that's what that's for. I was sitting there going, I'm like, they're ripping that off, and I can't remember from what. Thelma and Louise, I had not. If only they had been holding hands and um, Glenn Fry music was in the background. Um, I, maybe that would have uh, uh, worked even better. But, yeah, they're, they are certainly uh, going back to that moment. But the thing is, is that the Rowan ghost, which has become the big, the ghost symbol, I guess they call him Buster. I didn't know it had a name until you said well, that. I, 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 I called him Buster. I don't think they ever gave him a name. But I, I like it, though. I think we're going to go with it. So, <laughs> right, I like so it. If, if that comes back in the second movie, we know they listen to our podcast. We, we will know so uh, that they, they're on top of it. Uh, maybe we need to wear thicker tinfoil hats if we want to believe that. <laughs> but uh, I like the fact, though, that the Rowan Buster ghost is like wrangled a little bit by because they basically create a huge ghost trap out of that, which is a, a cool idea. But that's not enough to bring him in. And and again, if there's any more, let's do let's not make this a female empowerment movie, but let's make some fun of that. The four of them shoot the ghost in the ghost balls to make him sort of <laughs> let go and get drugged into oblivion, which I did I did like. I'm not gonna lie because and it's probably because Leslie Jones does. You did want us to shoot him there, right? You know, because they all sort of instinctively go for it. Yeah, that 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 scene wasn't as bad as uh, Reddit led me to believe it was. <laughs> See, I, I'm glad I stayed off of Reddit. They even make jokes about Reddit in this movie. I think some of these scenes where they're making fun of comments in social media. Oh, they, yeah, they definitely. That's definitely a reshoot. <laughs> yeah, they were like, "No, we're totally going to roast those people." Even Charles Dance, even I, I bet Charles Dance doesn't even know what Reddit is. He's like, "What is Reddit?" You know, so whatever. How much am I getting paid for this? So, <laughs> how many zeros? Fine. So, and he just goes on with it. But uh, no, I I do I do like the that he's getting wrangled in. But he grabs Abby, who pushes one of them out of the way, and Aaron has to think on her feet. So she does the diehard jump uh, with a a tow cable uh, into the uh, the abyss, and we get another cheesy and sweet moment, but I did like the fact that it w- she would have to go drag Abby back out of the abyss. She wasn't going to just let her go again. Oh yeah, definitely. That's, uh, it also kind of made me think of the, um, uh, crap. What's that movie with, uh, Craig T. Nelson? Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Oh yes. It's, well, it's definitely a Poltergeist rip. It's also, I, I got a little backdraft on it. <laughs> you, oh, you go, nice. You go, we go, even though that's Chicago. Uh, but I was, I was going there. Yeah. That, there's, it's not the only thing they do. Uh, I mean, when they both come out of the thing, which is grand, they both have stark white hair. And I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. I like the fact that there's like a lingering effect there. Yeah. yeah that was. Uh, I did enjoy that and their um, respective responses to the hair. Um, I, that's also one of the another great Kate McKinnon line when they come out of the thing and they ask what year it is, and she says it's 2040. <laughs> the president, yeah. is a, the president <laughs> I, is a plant. I so thought that was going to be a Trump joke, and and I'm kind of glad it wasn't because it would have dated this movie a little bit. I love the 2040 in the president's a plant. No, you've just been gone two minutes. <laughs> you know, and so it was great. Because again, that that reinforces that, you know, Holtzman is just like riding that line of functioning and completely nuts, you know, and she's almost like Riddler crazy uh, and Jim Carrey like in some ways. I, I sort of feel like she is playing that. She does make some really great Riddler type faces. She really does. Like she's always contorting her face. I do feel like her performance is is 
largely informed by Jim Carrey's Batman uh, Forever uh, turn as the Riddler. So, which if you go back and listen in the archives, folks, I liked that movie a lot, and Anna hated it. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, but you know, we just had different tastes, so that that's fine. Uh, I I do like it though. But you know what? The end is not the end. Like there's like an extended coda. It's almost like a fourth, a half act here at the end where we get the cover up from the mayor that is on the news or whatever. And we see something though, that Aaron like doesn't even care anymore that that is happening. Like she doesn't care about her reputation. She's ready to go full on with this. Even before Cicely strong says, we'll give you anything you want. Yeah. And that's again, we got to go back to it. That's definitely some more, another display of character growth. And it, it, it it really kind of helps, um, put the sort of the capper, I think, on the whole, her whole journey throughout the movie. I, no, it, it, I think she's the one that has the complete arc in the film, honestly. It's almost all about her. Uh, and, you know, the skeptic in the first movie was Vinkman. He, like, he believed it, but he didn't really. But once he saw that ghost at the library, he was, like, in, you know, at that point. She's taken a little bit longer to come along, even in spite of what all she's seen. She still tried to protect herself, and what she ultimately realizes is that that it really didn't matter, you know. And so she's doing what we want them to do. They're teaming up at the end here. Yes, and they get the firehouse back, and they get secret government funding, which yes. t- which again ties back into uh, everyone's tinfoil hat theories. Of course, but again, the audience today believes that about our government, and we also believe that we probably would. A nominate a plant for president. I'm not certain I'm not going to vote for a ficus myself uh, come November of 2016, but we'll we'll get there. So, well, I uh, mean, let's not forget this is also the same government that perpetrated 9-11. <laughs> right. Well, I love that the cover story is that uh, ISIS has drugged the water supply. I'm like, that's straight out of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's, it was PCP. You know, again, so I I let chuckled at that because and I and I also know. enjoyed that the news anchor basically said no, it wasn't. <laughs> right? Or, <laughs> yeah, because again, news anchors nowadays would be like no, <laughs> you know, that it'd be like on the O'Reilly Factor that night or Hannity or something. So, uh, but no, I I did I love that I love the extended montage we get here at the end though because we do get a montage. I said we didn't get one. We actually do when they're running the credits. We see them you know working on stuff and doing things, and we kind of see scenes replayed in, before we get to the big dance scene. And I like the fact that it looks like, yeah, they're they're ready to roll now and and are going to be setting up something new for the next movie. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that part, and uh, I actually missed most of the post-credit sequence. Um, but fortunately, slash unfortunately, the, one of the people cleaning up the theater told me what happened before, oh. my, before my wife could tell me what happened. Oh, What's, I- <laughs> Well, it's it's okay. I bought a giant um, gallon of Coke Zero, so I had to make a bathroom run. Yeah, that that will do it to you every time. Well, what you missed was the dance montage that we thought we were going to get that we actually get. Oh, I didn't see that part. I made it through the dance montage. I was trying to wait for any post-credit scenes, and that's the the thing I missed at the very end of the post-credit scene. But I did I did laugh at the. at Kate McKinnon's title card being her licking the gun. It's perfect for that character, though. I mean, of all the faces to grab, that was the one to get. And all the others kind of get a a pretty standard, you know, picture, and that's the only one that's, like, 
funny. Well, it's the only one that's purposely just goofy. But again, that character is is the female Jim Carrey Riddler. We've all we've already said it. I mean, I think that was perfect for that. That's 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 when that cemented that in my head. By the way, I was like, yeah, we're totally doing that, aren't we? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> you know, because so, again, I thought if I were her, I'm like, how do I make this my own? I'll just be like batshit insane. You know, the whole movie, and everybody else just act like that's totally normal. You know, and that's what's best about it is not so much what she's doing sometimes, is that everybody else is like, yeah, that's just Holtzman. You know, it's, it's just, she's just the weird cousin. And I really liked the, um, the Sigourney Weaver cameo because you can kind of see where she gets it from. Oh, yeah, but she does that. T- shows, again, Sigourney Weaver, if you never realized how tall that woman is, let her show up on a modern set. She's 6'2", as it is, and she rolls in there probably on heels, and she's at least a foot taller than Kate McKinnon. But she's her mentor. She taught me everything you know. And she's like, what are these safety lights? Those are for dudes. you know. And they have this whole girl power moment, which is funny. Yeah, I, I enjoyed their mutual disregard for safety and um, their mutual... Um, desire to have a <laughs> nuclear <up>. reactor. <laughs> yeah, blow things up. That's that's what they live for, clearly. So, the final sting, though, is the best one, where they're working on stuff in the lab, and uh, Patty, Leslie Jones, is listening to, you know, voice tapes or whatever, and she's like, who's Zool? And, like, literally the, the ten people that were left in the theater all went, ooh. And I, that's going to be the last thing I wanted to ask you is, okay, clearly that's done for, you know, fanboys and everything but it's an interesting setup do you think they will do a sequel do you think they'll follow that path or is that just a throwaway scene um i think if it makes enough money they're gonna do a sequel um that may have just been an inside i don't know if they're gonna actually do zool again i don't know if you want to ape the original movie that closely but I think it, if there is a Ghostbusters two two, um, that's their their post credit sequence is going to be who's Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> I I you know I kind of hope they don't go back to that. Uh, <laughs> I'll just say now is we, we'll I, disagree clearly on him. I would love to see, but I would love to see like Peter McNichol back I, in yeah. a Ghostbusters movie. Now, yeah, his cameo next. I do want to see him cameo next. I do agree. I, he that should, was he one should just play uh, Janos again. And just... I mean, really, he could just be the same guy. I mean, he doesn't have to do anything new. Because um, he would be running around still somewhere. So, but I, No, I, I, I kind of hope that's just a throwaway sting, you know, that it's not a Marvel thing where they're trying to actually connect any of that. I, I, because, again, this film has done so much to try to say, we're going to pay homage to all that stuff, but we're going to go our own way, and I feel like they've now set them up to be able to go their own way again if the box office is there. I agree with you that that's going to have to come through, and who knows? I mean, you know, again, we're recording this, releasing it as this movie releases, so we don't know what kind of money it's going to make. We'll have to see in the coming uh, weeks and months. uh, Well, the fact that it's not playing in China is really going to hurt it. No, I do agree with that. That's basically the... I mean, that's basically the second most important box office in the world after the United States. So that's, I don't, but I don't know how you can push something like this through the Chinese censors. I don't think it, you could. And I, and I see now that that is going to be a problem. I wonder how they'll try to make up for it if they can, because I don't know if there's any way you could recut it to make it work, you know, based on those Chinese censorship laws, but. 
maybe TV a video program. game. <laughs> maybe so. Well, there is one supposedly coming out with this, so we'll we'll have to see. But uh, if if people will do that uh, at the rate that they downloaded Pokemon Go, only if they could have worked that in there somewhere. Uh, but I guess that that just happens. So they they'll, shoot that. they'll save that for the next movie. There'll be some sort of app that turns a phone into a proton pack. I fully expect about six other ones to beat them to it, but uh, you're not wrong that that would be the way to do it. Well, I think we're at the point of the podcast, Ron, where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for the 2016 Ghostbusters? Well, I, I went in expecting it to be awful, or at least not funny, and I was pleasantly surprised to find out that it was both not awful and at parts pretty funny. Uh, I have to, you know, r- really say that they they did uh, the casting is great. I uh, can't argue with that. Uh, I enjoy the fact that you've got uh, three relatively grounded characters and then the the literal wild guard in Holtzman. Um, and so I would give it uh, like a good solid. Uh, medium popcorn to a large popcorn uh, that needs more butter. Um, which is my tortured way of saying it was good, but it, it it could have been better. And I think that if they do come back for Ghostbusters 2, that I think that it, if they can avoid aping the original Ghostbusters quite so much, I think they can really do something with it. It's so hard to be the remake, reboot, reimagining of something and to try and straddle the line between paying homage and doing something on your own. I think about Rob Zombie's Halloween when I, you know, when I was driving here to talk about this. and These movies have nothing in common other than they are both doing that. But the first two-thirds of that movie for him were the parts he was most interested in, you could tell. And then the last part of it where he just kind of remakes Halloween, he sort of fast-forwards through it and do the greatest hits, and then that's it. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that movie falls apart because of that. Um, it, it, because there's part of it you can tell that the director's clearly not interested in. Here, though, I feel like Feig is in control the whole time, because I've said it 20 times this podcast, I'll say it again. He was not interested in making a horror movie with comedians in it to see if they could be funny. He was interested in making a comedy movie and sprinkling and peppering a little horror in it with people that he thought he could get to work well together that did work well together. And in large part, it succeeds. I think I feel strongly positive about this movie in a lot of ways because I went in with no expectations. Uh, probably aided by the fact that I'd watched that one trailer and said, eh, and just sort of you know moved on from it, and that I didn't expect it to be uh, you know, a complete remake and didn't want it to be a complete remake of the 1984 film, which I love. Is it as good as that one? No. Uh, you know, it's not. But is it good? Is it thoroughly entertaining? Is it enjoyable? Is it really funny in parts? Heck Yeah. Uh, I think it's very funny. I think it delivers completely as a summer movie and what I what I wanted from it and didn't think I would get. So I'm going to give it a large popcorn. And it's that it's not the perfect large popcorn, but it's completely fine. And if you will just go into it to watch it, folks, and just put aside everything you love and want a Ghostbusters movie to be, just say, okay, I know all that, that's my you know, knowledge, and you just sit and let it wash over you, you're going to laugh out loud at this thing. It's funny. And I think you, you will find yourself having a good time with it. So I'm going to say, yes, yeah, see it. 
And, I, you know, I saw it in big D. I didn't see it in 3D. I could tell the shots that were 3D. If anybody sees it in 3D, I'd be real curious to hear what you thought of it. I don't know that it necessarily needed that. But it looked great on that giant screen, and it was a lot of fun. And I'll say it now, I'll probably go see it again in theaters. I, you know, I went by myself. I'll probably take my wife to see it because I can tell the parts that she'll laugh at too. And so I, I give it a large popcorn. I think it's a very fun film and, and mostly works for me. I really, I really laughed at the um, Annie Potts cameo. Oh yeah, no, that was great. Yeah, what do you want? We get that. So uh, it's yeah, it's just get that freak out of here. So it's it's great uh, to see those kind of things. And you know what, cameos in movies, something most of the time, I'm like, eh, don't need them. I thought these were all done pretty well. I I was pretty down for the the onslaught of cameos we got. I get the feeling that uh, Bill Murray said, "Yeah, sure, I'll do it if you kill me." Yeah, exactly. Or the, maybe the I won't do Ford. it un- unless you kill me. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, because there's all this that they had to sue him to get him to do it. I don't buy that. I bet that he did say, "Yeah, but I'm dying. I'm Han Solo in this one." So, <laughs> well, that's just going to set up for Ghostbusters two when he shows up as a ghost. <laughs> Let yeah, no, no more cameos from the originals. I did say though, nice touch to say for Harold Ramis at the end of this because I was like, you know what, I. I've seen a lot of Ramis movies. I think he would approve. I think he would have enjoyed what was done. And so, yeah, the movie works for that. So, folks, thanks for joining us on this super fast edition of Film Strip. You can find all of our other episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Hook up with us on social media, too. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, uh, J underscore Newcastle. Ron is at Hollywood Ron. And uh, you can find us uh, tweeting about movies we see and the podcast and lots of other stuff all the time. You can also check out Ron's work over at Den of Geek. If you're a fan of Walking Dead or, goodness gracious, what else do you review over there? Game of Thrones? Everything, right? Yeah, Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, Game of Thrones. Uh, Your wife does the Screen series that's on MTV now? Yeah, I do Preacher. Uh, also on AMC, I basically cover all the AMC shows. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're an AMC super subscriber. So, but no, all that stuff at Den of Geek, folks. Check it out there. And hey, hook up with us on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the film. We appreciate your support. We have got a ton of cool stuff coming up for the the Shocktober. What I call extended Shocktober. It's pretty much all fall. I mean, we're, we've got a, we've got another uh, unauthorized our lifetime podcast. Ron and I have watched both the 1996 version and 2016 version of Mother May I Sleep with Danger. That's coming out next. Speaking so, of reboots, <laughs> speaking of yeah, speaking of reboots, you're going to tune into that. We've got a couple more of those. Then we're going to kick off our Shocktober, where we're going to be reviewing Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, culminating with Freddy vs. Jason at the end. We're going through both series all the way through their remakes and then to Freddy vs. Jason. All of that coming up August through October. Check it out and uh, listen to the show. And if you like it, please leave us a good review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. We've been doing this thing for six years. I, that blew me away when I looked at that this week. I was like, over six years I've been doing this podcast. Holy cow. Um, and every bit of it available for free for you always. We do this show because we like talking about movies and agreeing, disagreeing on them and interacting with you all. So let us know what you think. And, uh, you know, hey, sometimes we uh, we pick a real variety. I mean, we have a lot of stuff out there. So uh, enjoy it all. We're glad to do it for you. Uh, Until next time, from Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip.
Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.